Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. G'day, Curran here. Just uh, just a quick wee break in the podcast here. Uh, the, the previous podcast, we've put out a note uh, essentially saying that we are looking for supporters of the podcast. Now, firstly, a big thank you to all those that reached out to us. We are working through it at the moment to see how we best go about ensuring everybody that is wanting to get on board gets gets what they deserve really you know we want to we want to pay genuine thanks to those people and we want to ensure that what we are offering is offering them in return as much as we can so that's that's for us to work on importantly what we wanted you guys the listeners to know is that this podcast which is brought to you free and is brought to you to encourage learning and growth and, and good content is not about to become advertorial heavy. In our mind, that's a shit way to go about it. So we want to ensure that you guys, the listeners, understand that we're not about to throw that away. Now, the flip on that is we are going to acknowledge those that support us in the podcast. Uh, but it will be brief. It won't It won't impact in the podcast itself. And, and And what we want to be able to do is offer those that support us we will give them a genuine podcast opportunity where they can talk about their products, talk about their business, talk about their values, talk about why they do what it is they do. A real opportunity for you guys, potential clients, to actually understand that business. Uh, we feel like in today's market, you can buy essentially anything from everywhere. But out there, there are great businesses doing great things and really supporting the hunting and outdoor enthusiasts of New Zealand. And they're the ones that we want to be parted with. So, yeah, don't fret. It's not going to become uh, very advertorial heavy. It's not going to become an in-your-face sales push. There will be opportunities for our supporters to offer those kinds of things in their podcast, at which case you get the, you get to make the decision on whether you're going to listen to that. Yeah, our podcast is for you guys. That will always remain our priority. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast. Today's podcast is with Hemiwara Gibson, a.k.a. Sam the Trapman. Sam has a huge wealth of knowledge in native New Zealand and, importantly, how to protect it. So we had a cool chat. Uh, it ranged from family to native New Zealand to flora and fauna that can help us or hinder us and how we go about protecting it and enhancing it. So it was an awesome chat. It was a long chat, so make sure you're about to jump in the car for a decent drive or, you know, the kids are in bed or whatever it is that's going on for you because it is a long podcast, but it's a cool podcast. Uh, lots of awesome information in there. Lots of um, opportunity just to understand how passionate this guy is about Native New Zealand. So uh, get onto it, listen to it. It's a good one. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'll definitely do a round two with Sam uh a wee bit down the track so yeah enjoy Alrighty, 
I've got uh, Sam Gibson, uh, a.k.a. Sam the Trap Man. How are you? Living the dream, Karen. How are you doing? I'm good, man. I've um, got the daughter in bed. Uh, the wife's just turned up. She's only just finishing her day now. So, uh, yeah, no, it's been it's been a good day. Bit of work to do and a few chores and juggling being a dad. So, yeah, no complaints. I know that feeling, eh? Yeah. Post-lockdown, a- being a dad takes on a whole new meaning. It's awesome. <laughs> are you... Just while we're there, are you are you the main caregiver in terms of day to day hours or no? So I, I work full time and I spend quite a bit of time on the road with with my job. Mm-hmm. So my partner, she's she's uh, she's the main at home mum, yep. which is awesome. Does a great job of that, and mm-hmm. uh, I guess I I bring home the food and bring home the bacon, really. Yeah, oh, and it's um because I I probably do. Well, I do do the majority of the at-home stuff, um, especially now post-COVID. It's had a pretty detrimental effect on my main business. But, man, I know it's been said before. I know it's not a sexist thing. I know all that. It's a tough job that we undervalue. <laughs> totally. Just, and I just, think it's really amazing too. Like, as a, as a dad, just being able to spend more time being a dad over lockdown. Yep, yep. Like, um, I really... But like it's got to be tough. But man, I really envy if you, you if you um if that's your reality at the moment, that's awesome. Yeah, like it's a it's a super exciting, rewarding, totally loving. Like it's it's got so many amazing positives. But some days you just like, and I mean this with no disrespect to my daughter or my wife. I'm like, I just don't want to do it today. <laughs> you know, I just want I just want a current day, and it's. Whatever, I mean, it is what it is. I'm a dad now. <laughs> it's relentless, eh? Like, yeah. I just know, also, my boy, eh, he's, he's in at 5.30 in the morning and he just wants to play straight away then. And, you know, 3.30 is knocking on the door at the office, wants to go bush. And, yeah. Um, it just doesn't stop, does it? But and just... especially, Yeah, especially if you want to give more, too. You know what I mean? Totally. Like, I can totally. see, I can, I can see why, and again, any of the parents that are listening that are going to hate this comment, I don't mean it directly to anybody, but I can see why the TV or a DVD becomes a real easy out clause. Because you do get yeah. to that point where you're like, man, if this was easy and it worked, I'd take that route right now. But I've, I'm trying pretty hard to always interact and always challenge her and, I don't know, try and get some stimulation elsewhere. Because I know that once she goes to school, I'm going to lose that ability to, I guess, control how much computer, phone, TV, whatever, whatever form it takes. I will start to lose a little bit of control, you know, based on what she needs to do through education, what her friends are doing. Like, I know all of that's coming. So I'm just trying to do as much as I can now. Totally. We've, ta- <laughs> we've taken the real easy route out in our house, eh? We've kind of got rid of So no TVs, screens are in the office. Our biggest issue has been on the phone in front of the boy, eh? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it must, like, it's so tempting sometimes. Sometimes we just, oh, oh I wish we had a TV. But um, we got chickens outside and the boy's just addicted to his chickens at the moment. He just, we just let the chickens out and he chases them around nice. the yard. And That's how I spent my kinda, childhood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Me too, eh? Just trying to emulate that. Our kind of parents were of that hippie era, eh? <laughs> That's right. Well, I guess hippie, but also, um, you know, they, as much as I'd hate to give them the satisfaction because they always word it back to you, but they had it pretty tough. You know, like, 
what they had left over at the end of their paycheck at the end of the week was never that great. So chickens was a, a way of having eggs, not, you know what I mean? Like, yes, there was a happy value for sure, but uh, there was a real necessity to be self-sustainable where they could. Oh, totally. I remember like some weeks growing up, and my parents looked after us real good, but I remember some re- weeks going up where, where we... um. We had wheat bix with no milk, just water. Eh? Like they that they, they did their best, eh? But um, yeah, they were they were harder times, and we've got got them now. That's for sure. Yeah, but in that and oh, yeah, jeepers, I don't know how we got in this rabbit hole already. But they um <laughs> they appreciated things a lot more. You yeah. know what I mean? Like they, we grew up then where we wanted, like this is only comparative, but we, we would have wanted the Cocoa Pops, but they were like, no, we can only afford the Wheat Bix because it'll go further, we'll get more meals out of it. Like, that's that's how it works, you know? But I feel like, too, they were they were a lot more generous with their time. So, like, yep. I remember, you know, it was really common for only a single parent to be, to be working out of the family and, you know, communities were more together, family, like extended family units were more together as well. So... I feel like what we lacked growing up in uh, sort of finance or, or, or things, the glossy uh, we bits, really yeah. got made up for it with the time that we spent with people. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I agree 100%. I've got, again, we, we keep, we're going somewhere with this, but um, I, had a, I did a podcast with Khan Adam the other week. We went away for a hunt and we were talking about, you know, parenting and he had his boy with him on the hunt and so forth and we were sort of got down the route of talking about you know when when parents now are encouraging their kids to do so much but it's for themselves and I <laughs> and I mean that like now that we have social media and I'm a I'm a very I have mixed opinions on social media you know like what I, where I'm going with this is some of the parenting we do now and some of the opportunity we give our kids is really about an opportunity for the parent to show that they've hit that goal or they've done that that stage or they've achieved that via their kids. Whereas the previous generation, without any social media, without any phone, you look at back at all those photos that are now very aged looking, their time was 100% about the kid and there was no, I guess self-accolade and what they were doing it was parenting and that's I that reckon is that's really cool probably that's probably true across society in general now eh? like mm-hmm. there's times there's times where where because I, I dabble with social media a little bit but um there's times where i find myself am i doing this just to get the content yep. or am i doing this because i love it yep and i really have to catch myself in that space eh? and mm-hmm. I, I i wonder if it's kids exclusive to kids or it's it, it seems no. like it, it's yeah. right through the whole of society around that social media thing like but we're not when i'm with my boy in the bush it's the real driver like i'm really lucky in that respect where the real drive is just about letting him explore mm-hmm. you know in the space that we're able to to, to to allow him to exist i guess and try and pass on those um those skill sets that we were taught as kids but um, yeah, it's a, it's a scary space that social media and that that mm. driver to 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 to, to um, 
to create content for other yep. people's enjoyment and not necessarily like live in that experience at the time, eh? Well, that's that's one of my. I'm, I'm not overly creative, so this is not me sitting on my high horse saying I would do amazing things if I really wanted to. Like, but I lived, I guess, a little little bit more active in that space a few years ago. Um, you know, filming stuff, putting it up on different things and whatever. But when I look back over all the years I hunted and fished and did outdoor stuff, the time I spent more time trying to capture it to share with others is the weakest memory bank I have. Right. And, and I, I, for me, for, for current, um, I feel like it was because I was distracted from the moment. Like right now I've got way, what, what comes to me internally are way better stories and people would never know I've done them. Um, other than obviously my friends and immediate family and what have you. But, and, and and since then, I've just I'm a lazy social media person, <laughs> which Matthew cringes at because he's like, "We need to be doing more," and I'm like, "Yeah, but it frustrates me partly." So, yeah. Anyways, man, we've got we got to get onto this. Sam, where did where yeah. did hunting start for you? Um, so I was I, I my my grandfather was a uh, well, firstly, I, I was raised by vegetarians, eh? My mm-hmm. um. My parents were of that hippie era. Dad was a surfer. Mum was a, a, um, an alternative nurse. And yeah, they were vegetarians, um, growing up. And I had, I had this grandfather that, um, that I used to spend a lot of time with. And he was a great deer stalker in his day, but he was, he was a little bit, bit old by the time I came on the scene. So he used to take me out, uh, duck shooting and pheasant shooting with his, English pointers and I used to sort of uh, sit in the in the back seat as he as he uh, he drove around the countryside and, and played blues and smoked holiday twenties out, out the window <laughs> and, uh, and and yeah waited for the dogs to bark in the boot and when the dogs barked we knew their pheasants around so um, yeah that was kind of how I grew up hunting and then when he passed I didn't uh, didn't really touch hunting again until. I was in my early 20s and I was working for Doc at the time. And when you're track cutting in the bush, at that time Doc had just brought in this this really terrible health and safety rule that you could only work a, a 10-hour day. And, you know, in summer you're kind of sitting there in, mm-hmm. in the hut and if you can only work 10 hours, what are you meant to do with the rest of your day? You can't go anywhere or do anything. So I started taking a rifle with me. And um, and I, I had no mentors, eh? So I, I literally... Had to teach myself how to hunt, I guess. And I was chasing reds, which was fairly easy, but my first idea of hunting was, um, covering as much ground as possible. So charging yeah. up and down rivers at a, at a s- sort of slow run and, um, and looking for deer. Of course, I never, never really saw too much. Um, and I had an old Lee Enfield 303, which is bloody heavy and had a bent barrel. So. Um, when I did, did come into contact with deer, I was really lucky that it had a 10 shot mag cause, cause yeah, uh, I wasn't that accurate, but that was, that was how I started to get into hunting. And I realized shot a few deer, um, when I was track cutting for doc in my early twenties and, and, and really enjoyed just being able to explore country, um, after work country I wouldn't otherwise get into, but then slowly like the challenge of, Oh yeah, this rifle's not doing what I need it to do, and 
and working my way into two, four, three, and and um, and just getting a bit more precise about my methods and and the equipment I was using. And and, and once I started getting getting a bit more precise in that, I started enjoying it more too because um, some of my early kills weren't as humane as they could mm-hmm. be, and it kind of did my head in there for a second. Yeah. Eh? Yep. Well, I can imagine. Oh, obviously, you had the the hunt influence from your grandfather, but if the majority of your life was in what was back then that hippie sort of vegetarian space, then anything other than instant kill would be a fairly contrasting, you know, activity at that point. You know, like it's quite a bit to go on. So, and, and was sure. that was that um, at that point other than filling the hours in the day that you had available? Was it as a sport or as a resource? Like, were you was the intention to bring home meat and eat then, or oh, entirely. So um, when we so so firstly because uh, when I was working for Doc, they give you like something like twenty five bucks a day to, to live on, um, right? <laughs> which is pr- like you imagine when you're working, you know, a mm. real solid physical day. Twenty five bucks don't go too far as as far as Tucker goes, so. Having fresh venison definitely um, was a resource for us when we were on the hill. Um, likewise, trout or anything else we could come across. But um, the other thing is by that time, my family had stopped being vegetarians. They'd seen the light. And um, it was just a way as a, as a young man, I could feel like I was contributing, um, feel like I was providing, you know. And I think as young men, that's, that's a real core driver for us that testosterone is burning hard so when I went home with the chili bin full of of venison um, makes you feel pretty good and and, and means the family's got pretty much the uh, most ethically sourced meat you can find in New Zealand and and with my parents being ex-vegetarians that's um, that's something that they they really uh, could align with you know Mm, and the the work you were doing for Doc you mentioned trail cutting was that the basis of that work so yeah to start with um i i kind of uh i started working for doc when i was uh 12 years old so i wasn't the classroom wasn't necessarily the best classroom for me at school so i started off trapping for doc in my holidays and and during school time sometimes um when i was when i was just 12 so um uh, start off trapping in teutoweta and then track cutting in the ruahinis and I was a dog colour for a while and um, all sorts of things. Catching kiwi and all sorts of things. Ended up in Fjordland um, for a few years as well. So, yeah, d- done done, done a whole lot of different things for Doc, which is every week was a helicopter trip or a boat trip or a jet boat. So it was pretty exciting and mm. got into some pretty remote areas, which, which definitely helped the hunting, but um, fueled my... Fueled my drive to explore the country i guess yeah and that and obviously you're starting there at 12 like has that always just been a lure for you like an attractant you know the the native bush of new zealand is that how you found yourself there or was it purely an available job at the time uh, it probably has something to do with the mentors i had around me for sure with it being available but it's i wasn't I wasn't really an academic person at school and the bush was somewhere I could excel 
you know, I was, I, I'm six foot four. I was a, I was a big, I was a big kid, and um, I could carry plenty of traps, and I could work hard on the <laughs> hill, and you know, and and coming from a kind of hippie background, I was really interested in animals and how ecosystems functioned, and um, I'd sit at the floor at the feet of these old Māori kaumātua and te, te Uruwera and listen to their stories, you know, and the bush was something that um, that had a lot of um, mysticism around it, but also was somewhere I could excel. And um, yeah, I guess like wherever you get positive praise, you just drive further, right? Eh? Mm. So, um, so that's 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 what it was for me. I, it's it's somewhere where I felt successful and and uh, I locked onto it, and and I guess I. I don't know. I haven't really let go go of it yet. <laughs> but you, but you're, you're not. You're no longer with Department of Conservation. No, no. So not, not as spending, an employee. No, no. I guess we're all driving for the same goal. But um, I've been working for Good Nature uh, Traps for the last couple of years. So, yep. and that's um, that's where Sam the Trap Man came about. Sam the Trap Man came about because I was going to all of these incredible places and had these had these awesome stories and not all of them could be told uh, through work and um my missus said to me like you come home and you're telling all these yarns and you're really excited about this little niche in each ecosystem and and you're frothing about it and there's this thing called instagram and i had a a nokia phone at the time and <laughs> i you know i wasn't the most tech savvy person in the world so she bought me a gopro and um and just encouraged me to start telling those stories. So that's kind of where Sam the Trap Man came from. Um, yeah. She encouraged me to stop being a bush hermit and uh, <laughs> start communicating. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so the good natured traps. Uh, give me a little rundown on them. Like we've we've had a podcast with the Seeker Foundation and the traps with were, Gary Howard. Yeah, we're mentioned then, but you've probably got a little bit more insight as to good natured traps and. I guess what, totally. where, how, and why. So. so there's a little bit of a timeline with those, eh? When I started trapping, when I was a kid, we, we had fin traps, and they were kind of a hangover from um, from Europe. Um, and they're a good trap. They catch plenty of stoats, and they're, they're real effective at catching stoats. But we were fine. They're really hard to set to start with for people that don't know what they're doing. And um, we were finding that You'd often get stoats caught by the poor, um, you know, really inhumane kills. We get lots of sprung traps, which means an animal's interacted with them, but they haven't got caught. So potentially educated animals. And the worst one I came across was a rat um, still alive, caught by the testicles. Um, And you know, when you're looking at an animal in a trap box and it's looking at you and it's caught there by the balls and... And, and you're kind of having this little silent communication, you just realise that, oh, I don't really want to do that to animals anymore. It's like gut shooting a deer, you know? Mm-hmm. No one wants to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, that school of thought around fen traps uh, spurred the conservation uh, movement to look at humane traps. And a couple of guys, Darren Peters and Phil Waddington, they came up with the Doc 200, which is... A really humane single action trap and, and just refined the game of catching stoats. But we were finding that with a single action trap, you know, mother stoats teach juveniles how to hunt. So you'll catch the mother, 
first and then and then you've got all these juveniles that are running free and they disperse and you've got a big population again so we made a double set doc 200 so you get your mother and one juvenile and then we're realizing hey like we're not really reaching our potential here and then compile that within any area there may be one stoke over a couple of k's and 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 you know 20 or 30 rats so your your trap line fills up with rats too and that's not really a target mm. species so what good nature was tasked with was hey can you guys make us a humane trap so you're not getting those educated animals can you make us a trap that will kill rats and stoats and reset itself so it, it'll kill the rats but it will still be available for those stoats as well um, and can you make it a lot lighter a lot more efficient and if you can, can you make us a long life lure that lasts four months so we don't have to service it every month, you know? Yeah. So they had a big task, these good nature crew. And um, it took quite some years to get it right, but they've evolved it and developed it and, and designed out all the kinks. And, and yeah, it's, it's pretty much changed the stoke trapping game in New Zealand. And now we're in 28 different countries across the world. And, and you know, we're trapping mongoose over in Hawaii and squirrel in the uk and kind of helping the world with their conservation issues too so cool. it's a so pretty neat story on because you, you sort of reference rats and stoats but ferret weasel in terms of new zealand are they are they likely to be killed by this trap as well so yeah the 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 a24 kills uh weasels for sure um the ferret's just he's a big bugger eh? he, he, right. the ferret has this incredible muscle mass um, especially the males, this incredible muscle mass over the, the top of its skull. You know how a pig's got such a thick saddle mm-hmm. um, to protect itself from other boars, you know? Um, the ferret's much the same with this muscle mass over its head, so you need a whole lot more power. Um, right. We've tried the A24 and a couple of different prototypes on ferrets, but we haven't cracked it yet. It's definitely... It's something we're working on and something that we'll continue to work on. But, um, mm. but yeah, we're not there for ferrets yet. Hmm. That's cool. So that's obviously a New Zealand business helping international. So that's cool. Totally. We're like 50-something people now. Like every time I go back to work, there's, really? there's a couple of new faces. It's, it's pretty incredible. And, and, and the different thing about our company too is like um, like it's all, it's all real young, innovative folks. So it's a, it's a positive place to be. But... A third of our business is uh, new product design. Hmm. So most people put, you know, two or three percent of their business into yeah, developing yeah. new products. Wait till necessity beckons. <laughs> totally right. Yeah. But we're just constantly doing it every day, so it keeps us pretty pretty fresh and innovative, which is uh, which is That's exciting. Cool. And what's so? What's your actual role with Good Nature Traps? Oh, uh, I don't really. Mm. So my my uh, title. They call me a technical expert, but that's a bit um it's a bit wank wanky, isn't it? So um <laughs> my job is I travel around the country helping people design and set up conservation projects. So they pulled me out of dock and pulled me out of the bush and said, Hey, we need some you know, the, the Predator Free 2050 movement started off and we had all these community groups that had a lot of passion and a lot of willpower and they wanted to do something and they, they wanted to, you know, save New Zealand. And, and um, they, Good Nature asked me, can, can, you, um, can you essentially help people 
figure out what methods to do, design their projects to best practice, and do all the pastoral care and help them problem solve uh, to help them get success. Because people starting this, this journey from so, diff- so many different uh, different places and different different starting points, I guess. And I don't know, that's what excites me. I love nutting out problems. I love nutting out, okay, so this is fruiting in that ecosystem. That's going to trigger this species to, to, to pop. And I know this bird species here is at risk because of that, you know. And, yeah. and if, I can, if I can set up a trap network to, to sort of halt that system, um, you know, that, that's what drives me. I, I, I get all nerdy and, nerdy and froth, froth about it. That's cool, man. So, and this, like, I guess the education path you took um, from those around you that valued the natural environment, uh, and then I guess I'm assuming that through this line of work and gaining more responsibility now that you're a, a what, technical expert, <laughs> um, you must have an ever-increasing appreciation for the native New Zealand. Is that fair? For sure. For sure, eh? Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Like, I don't know. Oh, you must be the same. I feel like most mm-hmm. most outdoors people are. The more time we spend out there, the more we notice, and the more we notice, the more we want to figure out how things work, and the more mm-hmm. we figure out, it just leans on to the next little niche in the ecosystem. You're like, ah, oh, okay, that's yep. that's fascinating too. You know, like I'm sure like every hunter loves sitting down and watching a slip, and then. Half the time they're looking at their feet and watching little insects or little plants and you know yeah yeah little robins and tom tits or whatever you and totally. it is it is it is an, ad, an addictive learning process in the fact that you probably don't appreciate the the time and the value you put to it until you're back in that environment if that for makes, sure you, you know and, and that's actually without going down the parenting route again I've found myself. Uh, relearn to appreciate some stuff that I'd started being, I guess, less intrigued by. Um, and, and I actually wrote my daughter a book from a walk that we were doing over lockdown just to keep the dogs fit. And, um, you know, it was like, we looked at this bird, we saw this lizard, we, you know, like it was quite cool to to actually notice all those things again. Are you writing writing children's storybooks? Uh, no, 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 no. I just wrote one for my daughter. <laughs> that, that sounds like a whole new avenue. That sounds awesome. <laughs> no, hey, but yeah. Kieran, do you notice that too? Like, you've spent a lot of time overseas, eh, in really mm-hmm. different environments. Yep. Are you constantly comparing different environments you spent time in to the one you're in now and then trying to nut out the best strategies to operate in them? Um. Yes, but before that, it really it took me to go over and spend my time overseas to appreciate what I had because I didn't. Right. I I grew up hunting with my father. I grew up essentially knowing all the landowners or having an abundance of dockland, and, and albeit back then there wasn't that many deer or things, but in terms of rabbits and goats, you you just went and did it wherever you wanted to do it and. Nothing was a problem. Small town, you knew everybody. You know, you, I remember at a young age we had high-powered slug guns or even our first twenty twos, just slung over our shoulders and we'd just bike out, you know, kind of through the town to where, to where we were going shooting. And and so I just took it for granted that I was then a hunter 
and I then knew what I needed to know off the land. And then when I went away and and experienced different models, I came back with a whole pre, a whole new appreciation of actually how good we've got it, and the fact that my misunderstanding of the fact that I thought we could do whatever we wanted was the best route, because it's been proven to me that that's not the best route. You need to educate, balance everything out, um, be leaders within whatever demographic you are, like lead from the front and whatever it is you need to be doing. Um, everything needs to be in a positive message. Everything needs to be constructively criticized and communicated. Like, so mm. you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to just agree. You don't have to just back down, but you need to communicate your thoughts and your values at a, at a higher level. And, and and the reason all that comes about is then you maintain the ability to enjoy the real basic things you enjoy. And there's a little bit of me that's like, man, I hate having to add so much admin to what should and does feel really basic when you go and do it. But, it's almost like it's incredibly basic, but the only way that's preserved is through making really conscious decisions around it, eh? Yep, and, and sharing those decisions. And and learning from others with more skill set because there is always others with more skill set as to why what you understand should and could be challenged and that that's probably the big learners I got from overseas you know like in terms of comparing New Zealand to other countries you know nothing has us on beauty nothing has us on um, the availability of different landscapes, you know, like to think I live down here in Central Otago, semi-desert type environment. But if I drive two hours one way, I'm essentially in Fjordland. Then there's the West Coast. Then there's the East Coast. You know, then you head up through the centre of the Mackenzie Country. Like, there's nowhere in the world you can do that. And, sure. and with and with that comes can, a whole lot the of time. The time yeah, is yeah, so yeah. much different. You know, like I remember living in the states and just just driving through the same forest type for half a day up to the day and it's like wow this is never going to change but then they have us on diversity of animals yep and so does aussie you know like it's everywhere's got its got its got its perks eh Mm. like we we have i 100 percent agree with what you're saying um but but we have an amazing diversity that we as typical Kiwis, and I'm not just bracketing everybody because there will be some people that will comment back to me on this, but we as Kiwis haven't actually figured out all our species yet. I mean, you're, you're, you're more than likely to have spent, understood, been around more species than most people in New Zealand. But what I, but what I, I mean by that is... But I know so is little. Like, I'm, Joe, I'm just like... I might, you know, like, I, I might spend a lot of time in the bush, but it's that old saying, you know, like, the more you know the more you know nothing it's it, yep. like it doesn't matter how much time i just figure like i'm mm. always just going to be scratching the surface of understanding this country yeah like, you know and so when you think of it like that the average kiwi um really doesn't hasn't got to understanding all our flora and fauna and all our availability um of such so yeah there was a lot of learning and it took it took some time it took some maturity it took some 
hard lessons, I guess, you know, like to fully value it. And and I and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but I've got friends that I've I started hunting with and still hunt with and they didn't go overseas, they stayed doing what they were doing and they're they still, you know, amazingly good hunters and they still really enjoy what they're doing, but they definitely don't bring an, another opinion to what's happening. They're still running the same way I did, you know, and I mean, I yeah, like I said, I'm not bracketing them because it was me. Um, but yeah, there, there's there's definitely a lot you can learn from in terms of other environments and other conservation or management strategies. And, and, and I think the one thing we need to be openly honest about is we... We like I've mentioned this kind of thing before, but we still live in a demographic where hunting is actually still reasonably accepted, which is a great thing. There's other countries around the world that have bigger, far bigger hunting histories that are really in trouble, and we should be looking around and learning what did and didn't work. We don't have to follow the North American model. We don't have to follow the um, Africa models, the European models, anything like that. But we can pick two or three really good working bits out of North America. We can pick the two things that failed out of Africa. You know, we could, we have the ability to at least look at it and make our own version. I think that's a strength that we haven't quite jumped on yet. You know, it's a strength, it's an opportunity. I'm not, you know, like somebody's had the goods and bads already. We just need to mold it to a New Zealand model. There's more and more uh, platforms popping up to address it, though, eh? Like, mm-hmm. I noticed your platform, and there's plenty of others in New Zealand um, and internationally that 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 helps us talk about those those concepts, too. You know, I feel like it, the uh, New Zealand hunting community is moving pretty quickly as far as becoming more conscious of our decisions, mm-hmm. understanding that, hey, things could become under threat pretty quickly. And I think that predator-free movement um, has helped drive that a little bit too because I think people see deer as a deer and pigs as a natural next step. And then, you know, our tar, there's an interesting conversation around tar, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, two years ago as well. So I feel like people are realising, okay, we need to be really conscious about managing our resources. Otherwise, they... They will get taken off us, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep, and, and 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 to the degree in which our messaging, our social responsibility, our interaction amongst each other needs to be at, at at such a level that it becomes difficult for those that oppose what we do to to find an easy route. They'll always there's there's always a route. Like that's unfortunate side of human nature, but. If if a message is so strong and um, collective and supportive and and has a willingness to learn, it gets really hard just to pick holes in it in a naive thought, you know, or, or a perceived naive thought, you know, and that's that's a strength we still could do with some work on. We're going we're going in the right direction, but we just need to, I guess, put Keep the hammer down. Out. Yeah, put the hammer down. Totally. I, I, I had a really interesting experience over this last year. Um, I, you know, I'm traditionally a deer stalker, love venison, love the sort of quiet way I go about it, 
quite peaceful, find an animal, poke a hole in it, she's over real quick. It 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 sits with my ethics and that's that's you know, that's not to bag anyone else's, but that's how I feel comfortable hunting and when I've come across pigs I've always thought, ah, yeah, that perfect love port, um, knock one of those over too. But I never got into pig hunting because I I kinda I've always had this perception that, you know, pig hunting's like big bailing dogs and uh seen see you know, watch videos online and I was like, Man, that's pretty pretty intense. I don't know if I'm I'm into that sort of thing. But in this last year, I've just been exposed to um to light bailing dogs. Hey, have Have you hunted over light light bailing dogs? Yeah, before, so Kurt? I run I run uh yeah light bailing dogs and have done for twenty odd years. So you know exactly what I'm talking about, eh? Yep. And as a deer stalker, being introduced to um to chasing pigs with light light bailing dogs, man, it's a lot of fun and it's mm-hmm. and it's super ethical, eh? Mm-hmm. It's um, yep. it's real easy. Like like, they're really smart dogs, and they just put put just a little bit of pressure on the pigs, eh? And then they back right off, and they allow and you call them off, and they allow you a shot at the boar. And um, I'm just I'm just finding that an absolute buzz. It's finding it super addictive at the moment, actually. Yeah, um, that's the trouble. It's, it's super addictive. <laughs> totally. I've um, totally. I've I've had my ups and downs. Uh, you know, obviously, as any pig hunter does over twenty odd years, and you know, I've done it recreationally, I've done it professionally, and the one thing is, it just consumes you. If you get the bug, <laughs> you, you you don't, you know. And like I'm at the point now, I've, you know, luckily got a couple of really good hunting friends that I, I happily leave my dogs with when I go away to do other hunts. Right. But like I, I did a tar hunt a couple of weeks ago, and literally, I wake up. In the morning, I'm like, geez, I hope they don't get a good board today. Or, geez, I hope the dogs go. You know, I'm thinking internally, here I am up this amazing Canterbury Valley where I should be totally consumed with bull tar, and I'm still wondering what's happening with the dogs back home. But <laughs> distracted by chasing dirty hogs. Yeah, it Great. doesn't leave me, eh? It just doesn't leave me. Uh, so, how you did know. you get into light bailing dogs? Like, did you grow up with, with, with holders? Or, or no, what was your no, journey on Always, that? always bailing dogs. So, I was lucky enough. I was lucky enough through a, a friend, a high school, well, yeah, school friend. We ended up at high school together, but. And his father was essentially like a third generation pig hunter. His, his father. Uh, was one of the few guys that essentially trained dogs for the government for their pig culling work, mm-hmm. and through that route, they they had always run bailing dogs, and that was because they their mindset around that was they wanted lighter dogs that went further and were able to hunt the next day because they were sort of doing four or five six days a week, right, um, and that was where I came about learning to pick up. So that was, I guess, you know, without sugarcoating, that was all I kind of really knew. I've never run a holding dog. Um, I've seen holding dogs that are really good and I've seen some that aren't so good, but I've seen the same of bailing. So it's not a, you know, I I understand where a holding dog makes sense. Um, but I enjoy the bailing dogs. You know, I, I enjoy having a lighter dog that goes further in the country I hunt. It suits. Um, you know, like, and I, I just, I like the idea that every bark could be this pig that I'm after, whether it be a big pig or an angry pig or whatever. 
I don't know what it is till I'm there. Um, yeah. You know, it's quite, for me, 20 years of pig hunting, like, hearing a pig squeal is actually pretty deflating. And it still happens. Like, my bailing dogs, you know, I, I typically have two or three on the hill all the time. You know, with the small pigs, that's, you know, that's the reality of what it is. I, You know, and then it's just my job to ensure what goes on from there is as ethical as I can make it. But totally, it's but, it's one um, of those things. Eh? like I've had that happen a few times now. And smaller pigs, they get overpowered. Yeah, and, and the dogs are squeal, pack creatures. And it's just totally, and it's just like there's that. I love that. That's scary, but I do love that drive where I hear the pig squeal. I'm like, right, I've got to get there. Yep, I've got to get yep. there now. And you know, it's 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 such a good driver. Mm, well, the t- the team of dogs I've got now are actually pretty good because they were all really young dogs when I did my last uh, big contract. So um, I guess in terms of a contract, it was months of work at six days a week pigging. Wow. So, okay. and, and they were young, as in between six months and 15 months, so the team that I have now. So the one thing they learned just through repetition was when we caught a pig, if it was contained, it only needed one dog to do that. So then they could just move on and hunt more, which makes it bloody hard work if you're on your own. But <laughs> it um, it does sort of remove that too many dogs on small pigs thing with the team I've got at the moment. I'm definitely not definitely not on a high horse here. I've had it the other way around too, but that's that's the way I've got it currently at the moment. So yeah, see, I'm I'm still nowhere near that level. I'm still still hunting under a mentor. Um, do you, you know Joel, That's Joel the best way. Uh, like, I don't I'm know just, him personally. I, I obviously know the brand and stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I've seen some of the I'm so grateful to that dude. Like, just getting under a good mentor. He, he knows his dogs real well and it means I can just figure out the process at my own pace. And mm-hmm. idea, idea being I'd be keen to get some dogs at some point but just That's when it gets figure difficult. it out enough, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I yeah. Bet. Walking, but walking around behind, and this is not not disrespect. I'm glad you're loving it. And I'm glad you're on the journey. But walking behind going dogs is the easy. That's that's pig hunting never gets any easier than that. It's once you start getting your dog, and you have to deal with the goods and bads, and and then the offset of that is it's way more rewarding too because you've actually got the real attachment to not only the pig but the dog that went and did the work or how they did the work and the and the time and effort that dog had to put in to do and find that pig and like it's for me it's all about the dogs now like I've uh, you know without again not on my high horse I've caught lots of big pigs I've caught lots of angry pigs like now it's 100% just the dogs um, if they put in a good effort I'm happy with, with the pig that's at the other end of it you know and if the young dog's are making progressive steps then you know i always come off the hill happy like yeah it's it's a it's an ever-evolving thing but it's it's cool man living the dream eh <laughs> something like that i'm lucky i'm lucky to live in a good area um where i have i, I guess a lot of farm owners that have trust in me and, and you know or whatever and i get results for so um i'm very fortunate in the fact that i have an abundance of property to hunt that's that's one of the real pluses 
for where I am. For mm. sure. Well, I'm up here in Gizzy and there's a whole there's a whole couple of forests up here and not a lot of guys that are that are keen to push into back country. So if you're ever up this way, sing out. Yeah, man. You can definitely definitely hook you up a little bit. Cool. Well, yeah, because I've actually got a little trip up there because Matt's got a business partner. His family's got a batch out on the Coromandel somewhere. Oh, nice. And, um, so one day it's on the cards. It's always so hard for me. I used to, I used to, because I lived in Christchurch for a while and obviously did a bit of pig hunting around there and I used to pick hunting in the Awatru Valley and again, like that whole thought process, like it's so hard for me to get in a truck and drive past areas where I know I could catch a pig. <laughs> It's like, why, am I, why am I doing this? Where am I going? You know, like, uh, but yeah, but I, I'm glad you're on that on that process. And I'm glad, um, I'm glad. You know, I I, I talk about the pig hunting demographic um, quite openly, and I don't mean it dis- disrespectfully to anybody. But we we've done ourselves no favors. We're not a great demographic. We're perceived poorly, and we do essentially dumb shit by putting um, stuff on social media and, and, and so forth that we really shouldn't. Um, we, you know, we can't hide from the reality of what actually happens sometimes on the hill, but... Um, there's a difference between... There's a real big difference to me between um, acknowledging what can happen mm-hmm. and, and, and glorifying it, eh? Yeah. Well, I think it's when you acknowledge it and... And I guess it's it's not portrayed because I don't want it portrayed, but it's dealt with at a higher standard. It well, one doesn't make the same headlines, but two, it shows that we're generally remorseful for anything that happens, you know, to the pig or the dog. Whereas when we go ahead and portray it and display it, I think that removes. You know, like you can't say in post, "Oh no, I, I do care for my dogs," or "I, you know, I did care for the pig," because you've you've put it out there. Um, you remove your ability to to defend yourself at that point. And oh yeah, I I hope, like all kinds of hunting, there's a a shift in that because um, my real fear is pig hunting would be pig hunting with dogs would be one of the ones that would be easiest to be removed. Um, you know. When you look around the world, a lot of the other dog sports are, you know, being the, the first off the rank in terms of, you know, anti-hunting and animal cruelty and all that sort of stuff. It's easy to hit them hard, eh? It's, yep. it's, it's, a, it's a low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Um, but if, if, if we as hunters can take responsibility for for essentially representing ourselves better, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's going to be a lot easier to to maintain what we do. I think. Yeah. Well, we just again, again, like like a I guess repetition of my stories. You know, when we start holding ourselves to a higher standard, it gets harder for those that oppose our way of life. Um, it, it makes it harder for them to find an easy route into our holes. So, but anyways, on, on from the the pig hunting stuff, man. One thing <laughs> I've noticed on your um, social pages is sharing knowledge around plants and and i guess the use based on traditional uses like like um i don't i don't want to bracket you and and where your learning comes from here 
Um, where, did, where, did, where did you learn all that? And is it, and again, I don't mean this disrespectfully at all, but when we talk about tradition type stuff, is it tried and tested or is, is it traditional folklore? Like how does that, how do you fit around all that? It's a really, um, that's a really interesting question, especially um, for me. Um, so, so for me, I've never been a plant guy. I've always been an animal guy and I've come to plants uh, later. Um, and, and, and for me to understand the animals, I've had to understand the plants. And, um, I found that the easiest way for me to understand the plants and, 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 um, and remember them was to understand the uses for them because it, it gave them value to me. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, that's where my, that's where my thirst for that knowledge came from. Um, I needed to understand the plants to understand the animals. And I also was spending so much, so much time in the bush that for me to understand what was edible to start with and then um, also what was useful to me as far as healing myself from the resources that I had around me was um, was really important. Um, and the traditional side of things is, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. So, so my family, um, we don't have a really strong Māori whakapapa. So my family don't, I, my, my mother and father and that don't identify as Māori. Um, although my mother is Māori, you know, so we weren't raised with that outlook or that traditional knowledge being passed down to us. So, so that knowledge to me is something that I've had to relearn and bring into our family. Um, and so a lot of that knowledge was gained from the Bushmen around me, you know, guys that had been, that were two, two generations older than me, that had been raised in traditional upbringings. They knew what was edible, what time of year, um, and all of that sort of thing. They knew what was useful. For example, oh, we cut ourselves. Hey, we better get some emu set to, um, to stem that blood flow. Or if we've got a wound, we need to heal. The rewa rewa can, can help us with that. Um, you know, things like that. Um, so, or if we've got the runs, you know, oh, we better go get some koromiko. So things like that, that is incredibly useful in the bush. Um, it just gets absorbed or got absorbed in my, in my, um, upbringing in the bush, really, you know, from those that were around me. So, and of course, being from outside of that culture, those things held real value to me because it was new and it was exciting and um, it gave me a sense of belonging, helping to understand those things. So, so part of it is is that um, I've been given that knowledge from those around me, but also I love to research that stuff and dis- discuss that in a more contemporary sense on online forums and mm-hmm. and Facebook, and then I'll go out and try it, and if it works on me, that's cool. And if it, if it <laughs> and from that point, I'll like. I'll like share it with my family and, and, you know, um, and then if they, if they're all right, it's okay to talk about it. But yeah, so, so a mixed bag, eh? Those, those around it's us. It's super interesting. Yeah, it, it fascinates it me, eh? Hey? Like I, um, 
I don't know if you've listened to the podcast I did with Peter Langlands. Yeah, he's an onto it guy, eh? Um, yeah, mate. Like he, he. I don't like. I, I guess my version of foraging until I spoke to him was, I don't know, some wild fruit trees, handful of mushrooms. You know, like, I guess what I knew of foraging. Man, like he changed it, and then you know, and, and not everything we spoke about made the podcast, but when we started talking about not only you know dietary things, but but I guess health supplements and like I, it just became endless. I was like, man, like the things you don't know what you don't know. That's that's a hundred percent the truth, but. I, it was just so amazing to hear it all. And then, you know, that's, I guess that's what led me to like, essentially start seeing value in what you were saying because up until then I would have just saw you as talking about a tree. But, you know, no disrespect. Right. Um, you know, and, and that's what it took. And then now it's kind of, I don't know, like I, I, I'm not, I, just, I, I think I want to get into it like, Peter's Peter's obviously at a very high foraging level to 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 make the decision to drive five hours with your backpack and plastic containers because you know you're going to go into the mountain areas and, and pick something like to me that's extreme and I'm I'm super stoked that he gets enjoyment from that like I would for driving for five hours to go for a hunt like I just think it's awesome but then to see your stuff which was more well the stuff that I've seen wasn't so much about eating and you know supplementing your your meals with it was just around education and what can help you and health help you and like I yeah I just it's just super interesting and I think it's again a little part of that uh being a Kiwi that we're Kiwis are missing out on and I guess like like that's where I, I really consciously am trying to pitch what I do so I'm not I'm not trying to um to change people's way of living I'm not trying to change people's re- reliance on on the medical system um mm. but I want to really hit that um that 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 group of people where you know it's it's you're you're a mum you're a dad you've got kids you're a hunter you're you're a conservationist you're spending time in nature and hey, if, if something goes wrong or um, if your kids eat a berry, hey, you know that that's edible or not edible. You know how to react. Um, mm-hmm. If you're out in the bush and and you see some mushrooms, oh, awesome, I know what, what, what works and what doesn't. Or if your kid's playing with a tutu plant, what part of that's poisonous, you know? Um, and, and kind of helping our, our everyday Kiwis, as you say, to, to understand our environments just with, with tidbits, you know, and, and the more we can do that, the more um, the more we feel confident uh, well, I think you, in the you, bush you, and going forward. And with tidbits, like you say, for those that you're going to influence the most, they will that'll be the start. That's I guess that's where I've found myself. Like it's, yeah. once you get a start, then understanding that is a little bit more. Like I, I live like I say, here in Central, like there's no native bush like what you find yourself in readily available right here. But it's it interests me to the point now that if I was going to go away with my family for a week in the bush, I would then go and do a little bit of work on understanding some things so I could share it to them. 
and I think that's quite cool. You know, like yeah, that, that's that's what buzzes me out about hunting trips now. Like hunting trips with a young family is all about putting meat on the table for me now. Mm-hmm. But the thing that that drives me in a sort of recreational sort of role, I guess, is before I go hunt a different area. I'm figuring out what's fruiting and what's edible at that time of year and, you know, like that and, oh, what should I be looking out with? And I've got mates that make traditional Māori instruments and I've got other mates that work in te papa and they're always after resources from the back country too. So I've got those floating around in the back of my cool. mind being like, ah, oh, if I come across that, I better harvest that, put it in my pack so I can take it home and give to those guys so they can make these tonga, you know. So That's cool. It's um that's what drives me and, and and meanwhile I'm walking along with my rifle and, and trying to put put food on the table but mm. my, that's the the hunting's the peaceful part but my brain's going a million miles a minute <laughs> trying to figure oh, it out mate I know how that works eh? my brain is some some sort of beast when it wants to be eh? as with everybody's but far out when it decides that it's on the path of something yeah everything better get out of its way. <laughs> but um so so beyond the the health stuff do you and i saw recently you you um uh forest harvested some mushrooms so you do actually forage a bit to supplement uh your meals absolutely eh? so um so that's a big driver like my partner and i we try not to buy any meat from the supermarket that's pretty much a blanket rule for us and then as much um, as much of the vegetation that we consume, like vegetable matter and that, um, as we can, we either grow it ourselves or harvest it from the bush or from the from the park. Or in lockdown, we were walking all over the local golf course because there were mushrooms growing all over it. <laughs> so um, yeah, like, and I, I reckon my my sister's a nutritionist, and she's she's really opened my eyes to nutrients in in food. And so, you know, to, to have it fresh from the land, she reckons it's something like 10% of the nutrient value of vegetables disappear every 24 hours from, from harvest. Oh, really? So to me, I'm like, I'm, I'd way rather forage something fresh and eat it that day than go to the supermarket and buy vegetables. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, well, and they're always way more flavoursome, right? So, oh, way more flavoursome. And, and the one thing, I guess, over lockdown and and all that, the one thing I found with this light dipping my toes in the water of foraging um, is it's quite nice to forage what it is you find and cook it. And this is going to sound like poor curran. But when you are the stay-at-home person, one of the things that gets really hard is cooking. You get sick of cooking the same shit. You get sick of having to think about what you're cooking and you just get sick of it. When you go out and forage it and it already sort of dictates what it is you're cooking for that night and that then becomes an integral part or the integral part of the meal. Like it's actually quite refreshing to have that removed from your train of thought. Again, that's probably my current brain taken off of me. But Oh, mate, that's I, the I really only way it. the missus can get me in the kitchen. Like I'm, I'm not a big big cook but when it comes to like wild food it's you know forage food or, or meat of hunted i'm like i'm enthusiastic and, and it, it's exciting yeah, you know some ownership totally totally and and, and yeah it's a it, it, it sort of gets rid of that mundane oh i've got to cook dinner sort of live eh? Mm, yeah 
One of the um, one of the other things I wanted to just touch on because obviously we've talked a fair bit about the conservation stuff, but it was um, I I I was looking. I don't know how I found you on it in the in the the sort of initiative down of uh, well doubtful sound with pure salt. Um, you were were you part of the consultation of that, or are you just somebody that wants to help, or what? How did you find yourself in there? The other end of if the I, If I remember it correctly, so I, I used to work in Fjordland, hey, so got really good relationships with the doc office there. But Sean and Maria, who own Pure Salt, gave me a call and were like, right, we want to do this this conservation project. We want to look after, uh, you know, Mamako, um, Indian Island. And we got this big picture of what could happen in, in Tamatea and Dusky Sound. So, so they kind of had this big idea and um, they gave gave me a phone call and we were yarning about it and I said, oh, that's awesome. Next time in Fjord, then I'll, I'll give you a call and we'll catch up. And so um, we went down to the Black Dog in Tiano, um, had a beer with Lindsay Wilson, who was the um, the biodiversity manager at that time at Doc, and just sit down and over a beer and some maps, figured out what a project could be. And... Um, and they've run with it, eh? So yeah. the idea being that most of the islands in Dusky Sound have had ongoing conservation management on them. And there's an incredible diversity of, of bird species already there. And if we can um, take the stoats and the rats off the remaining islands, we can have this incredible arc, this incredible biobank from which... Uh, the rest of the South Island, if not New Zealand, can kind of grow from. And it seems like a logical place because it's so remote and it's it's so well protected. And over the last couple of years, we've just been taking off the islands with different, um, with Pure Salt doing a lot of it, um, with Doc doing a lot of it and a bunch of other um, organisations as well. And we're at that point where we're pretty close to stepping off the islands and tackling tackling some of the mainland. Okay, that's cool. It's pretty huge, eh? When yeah. I started this game, that was we were just putting endangered birds on islands to try and protect them. There was no. If I, if when I was twelve years old, thought that we could have kaka and kiwi and tiaki, for example, in the capital city, running around in people's backyards, it would have just blown my mind. And that's where we are. Hmm. It's nuts. Another thing I picked up from your social media, which uh, I guess it intrigued me, but I did see some conversation that was very for and against, and that was um, around your trout fishing. Oh, no, you're going to bring that up. Awesome. Uh, Well, look, uh, well, first thing... No, we can talk about that. No, 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 because before we go there, it intrigued me because... Well, I'm a trout fisherman, and I enjoy it. Um, but the true value of what you were trying to say, I couldn't argue with either. So to me, it was like, "Poof, I'm stumped," <laughs> you know. Like, and it was it was only the same as should we have red deer? Should we, you know, like it? But it was it just I just hadn't heard it come out that way before. Um, so it was interesting. Can I give you some background to that? Yeah, well, but firstly, because the listeners are probably like, what the fuck is Curran talking about? 
so essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there was you put a post up about trout fishing, and in short, it was about it was good to remove the trout to allow the native fish to to thrive or have at least very least at very least less competitors. Um, and then there, that's when the the those that had varying thoughts sort of started coming along the fact of how can you say you enjoy trout fishing but you want the trout removed from these areas and so forth is that is that a pretty good summary (laughs) that's 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 awesome i i I think firstly i gotta say that i love fly fishing i love the art of fly fishing i love the conservation ethics of catch and release for sure um, but to me, I'm trying to I'm trying to open our eyes as as a country to this idea of conservation for this country. So, to me, I'm all about catch and release. I'm all about fly fishing um, in the UK. I think that's amazing, and and. Hey, the way I do things is is only right for me, and everyone else will have the the way that their family does things, and the way the way that's right for them. But I I think it's an interesting thought, and I kind of I kind of lobbed that out there like a little grenade, and took a backward step, and thought, ah, oh, see what kind of see what this <laughs> what this creates, you know? Um, and it did create a little bit of a stir. But um, but I guess what I what I'm thinking about in that in that realm is, as you say, it's the same with red deer, it's the same with pigs, it's the same with any other non-native that we hunt. We're in this incredible, incredibly fortunate position in New Zealand that pretty much every species we hunt is introduced, and pretty much every species we hunt is deemed as a pest by the government. And pretty much every species we hunt detracts from our native environments. So to me, I'm like, if I see a deer, I'm in this really torn place of like, I want to conserve the deer because I love it. I want to conserve the trout because I love them, but also they're really detracting from our environment. So should I shoot them? Should I catch them? What's going on there? But um, my approach to trout fishing and trout in general, I just think it's an interesting debate and I think we should have it on a national scale. But around trout particularly it is our is our thought process that we should be treating it like a sport should we be treating it as a resource you know or should we be treating it as removing a negative part of the ecosystem so that our wildlife can shall we treating it like pest control yeah um so for me when i'm trout fishing I've got no qualms personally taking fish out of the river. I could probably count on one hand the amount of times that I've released a trout because to me it's the same as releasing a stoat back into the environment. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredibly challenging for me to catch a stoat as a trapper. Like <laughs> I spend so much energy trying to figure out the best way to catch a stoat. There's no, but knowing the impact it has on our, our native birds there's no way i'm going to release that back into the environment and to me i can't distinguish that idea um, yeah, it's, it's from, a really from fishing you know it's really interesting because i literally and i only through 
naivety, I'd never put the same context on it. Like I, I like to trout fish. I enjoy the environment. I catch and release. I catch and take home. I, you know, like, and it, I just it never, I never put any more thought to it than this is a great resource, and I pay for my fishing license, and I'd never thought whether I was. Like even the even the concept of whether this is a sport because we want to advocate it as a sport, but then is it a resource? Because if it was a sport, then maybe technically they could be all catch and release. And then where does that sit with numbers and the impact? And then does it need to become part of the management strategy so therefore it actually becomes a tool versus a sport and it's, it was and that's the same discussion with hunting like and that's why I I still in my mind have a bit of an issue with hunters calling themselves conservationists because there's very few hunters that are that there's there's a few that it's will, such a complex beast eh? and well, we I just think if it's we too harvest easy. 10% you know if we harvest less than 10% from a population it actually stimulates growth of that population because the food resource that that population feeds off expands. So they yeah. go beyond natural carrying capacity. So most of us hunt the front country, right? Well, that's it. And, 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 and we get to use, and I think, I don't, uh, this is in defense for the hunters that use the word conservation. It's because we, we're looking for good words to describe what we do. So conservation and I think we, fills as, that void for us. And as hunters, we genuinely care about the environments we're hunting in. Like yep. we're there, we care about them, we go about what we do in the most ethical and morally right way we, we can. And in that way, I think the values are the same as conservation. Yep. But I don't... I Where my mind sits in, the, in calling ourselves conservationists or not is we don't lace up the boots in the morning, get in the truck and go, I'm about to do this for conservation. Because if that was our story and that's what we went and did, we would pull the trigger on every single deer we saw. And we don't And, I, and there's, well, I don't know. So there's areas where I hunt in the Rokumata that are deer management areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is going to annoy some people, but I don't think so so genuinely i don't like to leave meat on the hill yep i don't like to do that but in areas where they're actively deer culled when i i think nothing twice of walking down the river and 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 and, and emptying emptying the, the magazine on deer and leaving them there when i've got enough for a feed you know where it's actually going to have an impact on conservation i don't mind pulling the trigger and I think that that's two different mindsets, you know. When I'm hunting, yeah, it's very our, different. Our family I, I, blocks, and I'm just trying to manage it for a food for a food resource. It's a very different approach then. Yeah, it is. The, 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 and the difference is, like I, like I understand what you've said. I'm not, I, I'm, I, if I was to be totally honest, I'm against leaving meat behind, you know. And but that's a little bit of a high horse story because the same thing when I've done my pig contracts, I've had to leave that behind. Um, you know, like I, I think ethically, we should be doing all we can to take meat and use meat. You know that. You know, I think that's part of our genuine story. Um, 
it's just it is just a hard such a hard one when we live in a model that um we other other than when we pull the trigger we don't overly contribute to conservation or new zealand's management of animals and flora and fauna or the whole lot unless Um, we're unless we're we're also contributing to conservation initiatives on the blocks we hunt and i know yeah you know like gary harwood and the seeker foundation there incredible hunters giving back to conservation pure salt another one great hunters but i think that's conservation i think that's where i like i 100% agree but i think that's where you say i'm a conservationist because i do this work yeah totally you know know what i mean i think that i think there is a difference um the act of hunting for the freeze is not really (laughs) conservation right no not not you know i get you can say that in a in a loose form because you removed one more animal collectively we all remove x amount so that helps conservation but it's not why we lace the boots up in the morning i think we need to be honest about that um, and i wonder you know, if that's a real complex beast because eh? it's, probably, oh, it's a massively complex like, you beast. and i probably have like four or five different drivers and my half of like one of my biggest drivers is just getting out of the house you know yep yeah 100 um, we probably got four or five different drivers and Maybe conservation is a small part of it, but it's definitely not the not the driving force, is it? No, and there'll be guys that do. Like, I'm definitely not bracketing everybody in that ship, but I just, I, like, I would rather hunters, you know, if you could wave a wand and get to that point, like, I'd rather the hunters said, look, we, we hunt because we like to hunt, we like to meet, we enjoy the challenges, we like the time away from home, but we're conservationists because we always clean the beach and we team up once a year to clean the local riverways that's why we're conservationists For sure. you know like i just think th- there's no gray in that story <laughs> you, you know and I, I often pose this this question to folk as well because i i don't know i like to explore different people's uh, outlooks on, on on conservation on, on that sort of interface between hunting and conservation i think it's a fascinating subject but there's one question I'm always asking folk, and I, 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 I'm like, so if we could, and an an ultimate goal for conservation would to get rid of deer and, and pigs and tar and chamois, etc. And if that was the case, and if we had an abundance of bird life, would you, as a hunter, be content turning your hunting for deer and your hunting for pig skills? onto hunting for these big juicy takahe and these big juicy kiridu, would that fulfill the hunting drive if we one day ended up in an Aotearoa that was that was that abundant with native species? Or um, do we want do we want these invasive species here? I think if if I if you ask me that question, my response to that would be for me right now with where my hunting sits it wouldn't fulfill it because I've moved away from all birds shooting. Um, right. Now, that's only a period of time because I did bird shoot um, and I probably intend to do it as my child or children grow up because I see it as a a little bit easier to share versus chasing dogs or, um, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I think I'll go back to some form of bird hunting you know we've got great quail shooting and stuff around here um would it fulfill my needs as a hunter right now i don't know if it would right 
So there you go. And that's, so and there's so my one percent. <laughs> totally, but like you know, that's that's the same answer as as many people given, and that's that's the reason why our game species hold so much value to us, and yep. that is the reason why we have to find this interface where hunting and conservation meet. You know, yep. we yeah, I always think it's want to have these get... game species, and we all also want to have healthy environments. Um, mm-hmm. And we need to meet. We can't just exterminate uh, one part of that. You know? Yeah, yeah. We definitely need to meet because it's, you know, there's also a very simple part of me um, that is comparatively to yourself, well outside the conservation uh, understanding. That I'm like, well, how far are we going to wind back the clock? Because if we go back beyond these species we hunt. Um, you know, like, is there a measure between the impact of having fallow deer in the South Island versus the tar seal roads that are now crossing over what were traditional game paths or or the amount of residential houses that have upset that were historically good bird life? Like, you know, we, where do, why have we drawn a line in the sand with game animals? And I, I get there's a relationship with what their where their habitat sits right now, but I think, I think it's in my mind again without the education, has to get back to a balance that is fair, because I know the red deer as a species, the fellow deer as a species, everything like that. They're they they've been here way longer than my family. So, like you know, if it's if it's last in first out type thing, um, you know, I'm ahead of them. <laughs> Oh, totally, totally. Like, it's a real interesting debate, eh? And and I love getting into it. But, um, Mm. and it's, and I think the the thing is, it's it's low-hanging fruit too. And I think also there's really interesting trial sites like Secretary Island, um, like the Wapiti uh, blocks in in Fjordland where that's actively managed, you know. Mm -hmm. There's some pretty incredible models. And you drawing on international models too it's it's pretty fascinating what mm. fascinating what could be achieved to help bridge that gap and and, yeah. and suit suit the, the, both the, parties yeah well the big but the big concern i see and that's part of educated hunter and, and the way i operate as current um it's fine for us to have this sort of discussion based on you know, I'm a passionate hunter, you're a passionate hunter, but then also has a, a very strong conservation um, background and interest and, and we're sort of mingling. But then there's then there's those that have kind of no attachment to either and when the message comes out that we have to kill the red deer because it's ruining the habitat and now we're losing our native birds, all those that aren't educated on either side, it's just easy to go, well, yeah, get rid of the deer, that makes complete sense you know like or and, they say no don't kill bambi yeah yeah well yeah there's that too um you know like it, when you're not when you're not connected to it it's 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 really interesting to see how the decision making process is perceived there yeah yeah and that that's that's a thing you know that's that's where our biggest i think issues lie um you know we need to because you know the 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 hunting community versus Department of Conservation versus the 1080 crowds or anti 1080 crowds, like we we actually and I had this conversation with a guy of Denmark the other day. 
when we all sat down as individuals, if we didn't have to bring up hunting and didn't have to bring up the death of an animal, either deliberate or non-deliberate through poisons and toxins or anything, we were actually very similar in emotions. We probably likely vote for the same sort of people. We like get the same enjoyment out of the same environments. Like he said, it was, and that, that really struck a chord with me. I was like, jeepers. And I was like, so, you know, we, we as hunters could be very angry against the Department of Conservation, but they're not our biggest undetermined factor right now. <laughs> you know, like, it's all the, the people that don't have a, a vote in any corner. They're the ones we need to worry about. And, and, it, and it always blows my mind too, like, so I'd argue that, that 80% of hunters in New Zealand are, uh, care about conservation. And I'd also argue that close to 80% of the Department of Conservation hunt. Yeah. So, like, we're the same people. Yeah. We don't do the same work or we don't, we don't make the same decisions necessarily. But we come from the same place. Hey, it's like, it's like, it's like, um, that, that argument around like hunters versus vegans, but like, Mostly hunters care about where our food comes from, and so do vegans. We're pretty much the same people. Yeah, man. Like, I, again, <laughs> this is probably the downside of having been doing podcasts for a couple of years. Like, I've had these discussions, you know, and I, I actually attach myself to a vegan, and the fact that they, they are attached to what it is they're eating, and they have, like, they understand the process from from initiation to dinner plate and that's the same as I have I can respect that eh it's yeah 100% but it's all those in between that uh, have a very blurred line as to what my social responsibility and the way I eat is versus theirs and that's that's very difficult I hear you but anyways (laughs) we can't be political all the time what's what have you got coming up man I know you've got a wee... Got a couple of things on my, on my plate at the moment. Um, yep. Just finished filming a mini-series um, called Wild Food. And that's, that's focused around, around hunting um, primarily, but also, also foraging. So going into the bush with very little tucker bar, some um, absolute wilderness dehy, which is mm-hmm. nice, but it's not as nice as we... We'd, uh, we'd like to live on for yep. multiple days. So um, going to the bush with not a lot of tucker, pretty much relying on ourselves to A, hunt with some good dogs, um, provide the protein, but pretty much where the pressure's on is is, is uh, me foraging. If I, um, <laughs> <laughs> if I can't come up with the goods, we're just eating meat. So... Um, it comes down to my understanding of the place. And, That's and cool, man. So, is a mini series for TV or just um, uh, just a mini series? That's just just on just on social way. Yeah, um, cool. A lot of I don't know. We we kind of made that decision to to just touch the market with with a social series and see what the appetite was. Cool. Um, especially around some of those ethical conversations. Yep. And um, if it plays out. I think we'd be pretty keen to go for go for something a little larger coming up, but yeah, that's about to drop mid early June, so cool, that's man. coming up. Pretty excited about that. It's my yeah. kind of first first dabble into that realm of things. <laughs> the celebrity, celebrity. Oh no! <laughs> sure, surely not. I'm sure we'll get like a hundred followers or something, whatever. Yeah. But cool. um, 
that's that's what's coming up and then I'm also um I'm setting up my own conservation project around Fior at the moment um in the upper Waiweka so um that's something that's really important to me I spend so much time bouncing around um the country helping people on their Turanga Waiwai look after their places and um and having some input into into everyone else's um what other people care about but for the first time in my life I'm able to um set up a project here at home so putting 300 traps around a field population that's on the brink of disappearing we've got four pairs left um so if I don't do something now um she's all over and we're, we're real lucky to have have some good people supporting us um on that journey as well so Hopefully, if you talk to me in a year's time, we've managed to manage to grow that population well, we'll that. to thirty we'll odd birds. You know, in a year's time. Totally, and yeah. hopefully, um, up here in a, in that's, a hut that's a, in the bush that's somewhere. If, that's if I uh, can get time in that busy celebrity lifestyle you'll have by then, mate. I'll pale into comparison to you. You'll be off on some. Overseas hunting adventure, I'm sure. Uh, well, hopefully, that's that's kind of that's that's definitely that's all I need in life. Yep. Yeah. No, well, Sam, man, I appreciate the conversation. It was it was a cool chat. Likewise, Karen, and um, appreciate you you putting this this platform together. Eh? We need we need people like yourself steering conversations. No, uh, that's that's the world go to a better place. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's that's the that's the key to it. Eh? Be openly comfortable having a conversation. Uh, I think you know it's a pretty basic form, but we've sort of managed to shy away from it somewhere along the line. <laughs> but um, totally. no, no, appreciate it, man. And I'll, I'll share um, your social links on our website and so forth as well. G'day. Thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at The Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode. Other than that, thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.